Right. Hello. Uh, this is Riley doing a solo episode. Uh, my solo episode is, uh, it has a lot of names. I think I've settled on uh, Red Riley's Commie Book Club, uh, Better Red Than Dead, a Commie Book Club. Um, and today I'm talking about a book that I recently got on the uh, Verso Book sale, uh, which I think is just wonderful. Um, it is called Psychopolitics. It's by Byung-Chul Han, who's a sort of, as you'd say, sort of a, a, a German sort of neo, 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 neo Marxist philosopher. Um, he sort of, he builds on a lot of sort of what Marx is saying, uh, but he is, I guess he, he writes in a sort of quite postmodern style. Um, you can detect a lot of, a lot of, um, like you can detect a bit of Baudrillard and what he's writing. I found a bit of Debord. Uh, these are all guys I, I fucking love because I guess this hasn't really come up on the show before, but I, I really enjoy, um, sort of weird ass Marxist ass, uh, postmodern ass, uh, theory. Um, and this book, this, this book, psychopolitics, which I'll sort of, obviously I'll get into. That's the point of what I'm doing here. I'm not just going to say, yeah, I love it. Anyway, goodbye. That would be stupid and pointless. And you wouldn't download that. You'd see to be like, oh, this is like a minute, 30 seconds long. I'm, I'm not going to waste the time to click my thumb. Um, but you have, so sorry. Um, anyway, uh, I, this, this book, Psychopolitics, is, I think, a very good exploration of the ways in which what you might call the neoliberal technologies of power, which is a term I'll go into, have sort of colonized everyone, more or less. Uh, and, and, they, and the way that it sort of, it works on your brain. And to cut a long story short, it's about how you become your own prison guard. Uh, but it's about quite a bit more than that, even though it's a very short book. Uh, so yeah, it's published by Verso. It's, it's, it's very short. It comes in under 100 pages. But... All of those pages are excellent. And I'm not just going to do like a narrative summary of the book because you can go read it. It's not very long. There's even a very, there's a very good review uh, posted on The Guardian uh, by Stuart Jeffries that I, I do recommend you read if you kind of want to see kind of just what, what, what he is saying. Um, I'm kind of going to intend to talk about this a little discursively, maybe a little bit in relation to what we do on the podcast in relation to other shit I've read in relation to shit that's going on. Because if you can't guess, I mean, this whole thing that, that, um, that Han is talking about a lot of it dovetails very well 
uh, with the Cambridge Analytica things that have just come up. So let's get straight to it. Right. So the opening line of the book, the opening sort of uh, dedication, not dedication, the, the little, the, 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 the quote in the frontispiece is uh, uh, protect me from what I want, which is said by Jenny Holzer. And so keep that in mind, I guess, as we go through and talk about it, because I think that really, really is kind of what we're, what we're getting to. So just a little bit of background on sort of one of the reasons I chose to actually do a review of this, of course, is the Cambridge Analytica thing. I'm sure everyone listening to this knows exactly what it is. Give me a chance to summarize it for anyone who for some reason doesn't, uh, who has podcasts, but then no other internet access, I guess, gets their podcasts delivered on tape. Um, that essentially uh, Cambridge Analytica, a uh, firm, I think based in the, yeah, based in the UK, um, has harvested a whole bunch of people's Facebook um, information and used that to create a, a very, very advanced uh, sort of advertising and micro-targeting um, capability. So, and the, what I find so interesting is that it did this by giving people like personality quizzes. So it was given to a researcher who then sold it to or sold it or something uh, along to this firm that then consulted for Donald Trump in the Brexit campaign and was able to, um, was basically able to target people more or less with propaganda that was like almost like perfectly psychologically individually tailored. Um, Hang on. I'm just going to think. Right. So, so that's the, uh, that's the, that's, that's the basics. Now there's a whole other bunch of shit happening. That's an almost criminally brisk, uh, summary, uh, but it is more or less useful for our purposes. Um, yeah, I, again, I actually do think it's, it's hilarious, uh, that, uh, out of two, that, uh, because 270,000 people, took a quiz to like, I don't know, see what mid 20th century, uh, dessert they were most like I was aspic, um, that now we have Donald Trump, but basically 270,000 people took this quiz, 50 million, uh, users of Facebook, uh, then had their data harvested because they were in contact with these people who wanted to know what dessert they were. Right. And then they were able to psychologically profile people and they were able to sort of pick everyone who could possibly be a Trump voter and then deliver pro Trump material to them. Boom. Done. So if you, <laughs> um, and where with gets, gets into the realm of, of, of psychopolitics is I said, I've said the word psychopolitics a few times. So how does that Cambridge Analytica thing relate to what Han is talking about? He says, today, and this is from the book, we are entering an age of digital psychopolitics. It means passing from passive surveillance to active steering. And when we pass from surveillance to steering, what we find is that sort of with, with big enough data and advanced enough, if you like, sort of modeling techniques, we can create, uh, or we, people, and this matters, uh, can predict human behavior to the point where the future becomes entirely calculable, calculable and controllable. And this is what Han says. And so what you, re- what you sort of think about this in terms of Cambridge Analytica is that basically, if through enough big data collection from enough social interaction on sort of these monitorable platforms, so like Facebook, Twitter, whatever, um, then the models of human behavior will become so perfect that they will know more about you than you know about you. 
they'll be able to anticipate everything that you do. They'll essentially be, and and, and that will sort of allow that sort of, it, it, what that does is it kind of makes the question of free will irrelevant um, because it sort of, it, it eliminates that sort of, that space where we might have that gap. It eliminates, it eliminates the space where sort of a theory or, or free will might fit because it just makes every prediction based on past data. And so that's where, that's where we pull back into Cambridge Analytica where we are able to now through advanced enough profiling of individuals understand exactly who is ready to vote for whichever party, you know, we're, 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 we figured that, you know, they've liked enough uh, ads for, for SUVs and they've, you know, shared enough, um, enough, uh, enough articles from like the uncut truth.com about like, you know, how Hillary Clinton's been fucking the moon that it's like, ah, that this person, this person is psychologically, psychologically vulnerable. But so this, what this anticipation entails um, I think what what really what's, what's really helpful to think about this is when you begin to think of the difference between yourself and a model of you, um, or a, a model and the thing of which it's a model. So if you think about a plane, a plane, what it, it, it has the basic structures: it had wings, motors, seats, a front to back, a neck, a back, a pussy, and a crack. All this shit goes on a plane. A model of a plane, it, it, it's much smaller. Maybe you can hold it in your hand. Um, and it's different from a plane in many key ways. It's smaller, it's less complicated, doesn't have a working, probably doesn't have a working engine, or it does, and the working engine isn't nearly as powerful. But what it, you can do is it's an abstraction of that plane. You can pick it up, you can hold it in your hand, you can turn it around. Um, and that's the, the, that's the difference between sort of a model of a plane and a plane. But as the plane gets to be a more advanced model, as it's a more and more, fa- a model that's more and more faithful to the original, then the more perfect the model gets at some point it just ceases to be a model and becomes a plane uh, because you know the the most perfect representational model of a plane that's accurate in every possible conceivable way you could get into and fly and then you have to ask what's the difference between the model and the plane well very little so similarly with regards to data when it's possible to create such a nuanced profile of you but where you're able to sort of systematically look at all past information and infer all future decisions from it, because the model is so advanced, what is the difference between the model and you? It's very difficult to say. And so this is kind of, I think, uh, Han's uh, entry point uh, into the question of, of sort of how of, of how politics works now. Now, of course, this book wasn't written in response to or to explain the Cambridge Analytica thing. It was written more, I think, as a sort of more more of a, a sort of thinking about sort of politics and control. And so, I'm not going to spend the entire time talking about Cambridge Analytica. It's just that sort of talking about these things like the quantified self as existing sort of separately from um, from you, but sort of actively created by you. Um, are are very relevant. Um, any case, so I think I, I kind of see this book uh, sort of in relation to 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 two others that I really enjoy, where it sort of asks. I, I don't. Maybe I'm being totally off base here, but I kind of I kind of I kind of I kind of, I kind of think about uh, the dialectic of enlightenment 
and the society of the spectacle um, when I'm reading this book. Uh, the Dialectic of Enlightenment uh, was published by Adorno and Horkheimer, two, two Frankfurt school theorists, um, to kind of explain, well, to explain uh, among many things, sort of like why revolution is or sort of rising up is so impossible in, um, in a world controlled by sort of feel like corporate media. So it allows you to sort of head to sort of control the message of, of what's going out. It allows and also means that kind of culture itself is debased uh, as it is marketized uh, because you, again, the book says many more things. This is just the bit that I sort of tend to be more interested in um, was their talk of the culture industry. And so the more culture is marketized, um, the more it tends to say simply be amusing but also it tends to kind of repetition, but also it tends to be relatively conservative and it sort of prefigures the sort of, and it not conservative in the sense that it preaches conservative values, but in the sense that it, you know, like the 94 essay, it commodifies your descent. You know, the, um, the sort of the, 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 the bad, you can sort of feel like the badass hero by going, sort of going and watching a movie about a motorcyclist and you sort of feel, yeah, I'm really going to stick it to the rubes in the, in the provinces. Um, uh, but then, you know, what all you've done is you've sort of contributed to the capitalist machine spinning further. Uh, I'm aware I'm sort of conflating Adorno and Harkheimer and Thomas Frank here. Um, but I sort of, I guess I, I think I, I, I tend to see commodify your descent and the dialectic of enlightenment is somewhat related. Um, and that sort of, it's that you're, so you can now, in that sort of mass media, it's impossible to dissent from and to and with and through, um, especially because it's sort of infantilizing and riven with nostalgia. Um, and it sort of, and it, and it keeps you settled. And I think that's where we come to the, th the idea of psychopolitics and this book and what it's saying is that's where it gets very interesting is because these forms of sort of corporate media exist largely to maintain sort of passivity and quiescence, um, because they are just, you know, um, they are either amusing or just overtly pro-systemic. You know, you get the, the usual critique of, ah, Captain America is promoting imperialism. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, that's, that's sort of, I feel like, that's step one. Step two, and where we get closer, I think, to Han, is when you go through Debord. And you, and you, so he's writing to Society of the Spectacle and I think, 67. And Society of the Spectacle, I'll be brief so we can get back to the real meat of this. I might keep that burp in. The society of the spectacle is sort of, I think, making um, making a sort of much more thoroughgoing point. In Adorno and Horkheimer, there is the screen and there is you. Um, and there are the shoes being advertised and there are the shoes. With Guy Debord and the society of the spectacle, all of those things kind of crash together. Um, and so what he, what he says is... Um, in societies dominated by modern conditions of production, life is presented as an, intent, as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has receded into a representation. Basically, what this means is everything you see is a commodity, and every commodity is a thing to be seen. The world exists as a bewildering series of images, and you're just sort of there watching, and it's all deeply self-referential, and everything kind of refers to everything else. Um, and you, but I think that the important thing here is, again, it's sort of, the, it's sort of ramming that passivity further and further in, your life could more or less be lived by anyone because everything is a commodity. Um, so for like the, the shoes that you buy are part of the spectacle. The Iraq war is part of the spectacle. The criticism of the Iraq war and the guardian also part of the spectacle. Everything is just this insane mishmash of images that you just sort of passively take in. 
and you sort of just direct your gaze at at any given point. Um, but again, like it's it in the society, the society of the spe- of the spectacle is fundamentally, I think, a criticism of society of a society of mass media. He prefigures social media a bit, but not entirely. Um, because you are basically rendered passive. All commodities merge into one. This is the political analysis of someone who is thinking about television and advertising uh, and brand tie-ins and selling the war and, um, you know, the, the, and so, and somebody's concerned like that. So this is why we sort of circle back around to psychopolitics and we see this power getting more and more insidious and sort of the, the consumers of power, the neoliberal consumer citizen being rendered yet more passive um, because the, the, what I think is very interesting, and this is sort of, this gets a bit into the class analysis of, um, of psychopolitics, um, is really about, hold on, I'm going to get to this, is really about sort of where that, where sort of subjugation, false consciousness and cl- and sort of class analysis now fits in. So if you think about the Communist Manifesto, right, when Marx is talking about uh, Guizot and Metternich and French radicals and German police spies or whatever, theirs is sort of the power of the brute threat of of force, of finding you and dragging you away and beating you up and then killing you. Um, But in, 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 in Han, in psychopolitics, how they're getting that information out of you is when you click like on Facebook or when you share an article, um, and no one's torturing you to get this information out of you, even though it enables sort of more direct control of you uh, than ever, essentially. Um, and that's really interesting. So what is the real class analysis here? So um, basically, I've sort of got a couple of notes. I uh, said the comparison between the modern alienated subject uh, is not one where we're constantly watched over by a police force who's ready to arrest us, uh, you know, for, for thought crime. You know, Charlie Brooker is a hack. George Orwell was a hack. This isn't how any of it went. Um, Because we are all supposed to think of ourselves as entrepreneurial projects, right? Um, So Han talks about how the I is now, the the letter I, the the self, is now subjugating itself to internal limitations and constraints, namely compulsive achievement and optimization. So if you like, you no longer can stand up to your boss because your boss is now a motivational coach and you are your own dickhead boss. You are the, you are the source of your own subjugation. And so people who fail, he says, in the neoliberal achievement society see themselves as responsible for their lot and feel shame instead of questioning the system which produced their failure in the first place. Um, and so we talk about this is actually sort of gets to, I told you it would be a bit discursive. This is kind of why we talk about Jay Shetty on Trash Future so much. Because to me, he represents the kind of perfect form of, of, this, of this phenomenon. He is someone who talks about success sort of absent any kind of concept, any kind of conceptual grounding, right? He's not talking about how to be a successful artist. He's not talking even about how to be a successful business person. He's just talking about how to be a kind of floating amorphous success. You can probably hear I was doing a lot of hand talking with that one. Um, And what he does is he says really, and what he says initially sounds, I think, quite motivating. It's how the power for success is in your hands. You can be a success. You just have to choose to do so. 
You have to wake up at four. You have to read 10 books a day. And the trick here is that if you don't find sort of, well, he wants to say success. I'm just going to say material comfort. I'm going to be less ambitious than that. I'm going to say if you just don't die, then that that's success. And if you don't get that, you know, if you do find yourself sort of uh, unable to sort of get on the housing ladder, if you do find yourself even worse than that, if you find yourself sort of routinely food insecure, um, again, this only really applies to the sort of like postmodernized societies, um, then you'll find yourself, you can just blame yourself. You can say, oh, I didn't do enough. I may have woke up at five. I should have woken up at four. I could have risen and ground more, right? And so this is what we get, but it feels... Doesn't that, just earlier, I said something that probably would feel quite freeing, which is you have the power to make your own success. That sounds quite freeing, but that's why it's not, because really it's sort of a trick. And so what we get here, and this is, I think, one of Han's most interesting points, is that power is no longer coercive. It's just kind of friendly. Um, so I, I sort of think of it this way. There's an evolution of political power, and this is something that Han points out, and this is the way I sort of imagine it, is imagine you're driving along a motorway, right? And you see in front of you a uh, double yellow line. Now, in an era of pure sort of mechanical, theoretical power and freedom, you either need a wall to keep you on one side of the road or a gun to your head, because what the fuck is a double yellow line going to do? It's just a line. I'm in a car. Fuck that line. Whereas there's something like the implied power of, um, of like Foucault's biopolitics. So he talks about sort of like the panopticon and the idea that you could always could be watched. Um, Han references Foucault a lot, um, but he's, he's not a writer I particularly love. So I didn't sort of make those connections as much, but it's obvious it's an important connection for him. Um, but biopolitics is in this case, kind of about the control of the body without the state really even needing to force you to do anything. You just kind of know it could, so you do. Um, and so you're sort of disciplined externally. Um, so without the implied pow- state power, with something like the, rather, the implied state power of Foucault's biopolitics, you're driving along, you see the double yellow line, and you know there could be a cop somewhere. He may be hidden. Uh, or even just it's conditioned in you to obey. You may want to sort of swerve around, drive like crazy, you know, um, listen to that fucking move bitch song, whatever. But you don't because you're aware of the potential punishment because the state is kind of disciplining you from inside. And this is where it gets insidious and very depressing because I don't really know what to do about it. Because with psychopolitical power, you don't even need the double yellow line. You just want to be the best at driving in a straight line because you think that's what you want to do and it will contribute to your identity and it will give your life meaning. If you see a speed trap, you're going to try to show the police officer how incredible you are at going the speed limit. Um, because I because what, what psychopolitics is doing is it's burrowing into your limbic brain and it's controlling not just what you do, but what you want. Um, and the way... I think again, though, almost the way you can you can sort of see that is in terms of the of the of the self. So what we we say is, you know, what what part of your brain is neoliberal capitalism asking on, a- acting on, acting on? In the first example, you know, it's it's the that power is acting on your body. You're being forced to go in one direction. You say, and the question is, can I do this? In the second example, uh, 
the sort of rationalized capitalist example. Uh, it's acting in your forebrain. So you're asking, how much will it cost me to do this? But in the final example, um, it's like we've been hypnotized by an evil wizard to absolutely fucking love the taste of boot, more or less, is what Han is, I think, implying. Um, and that's ultimately why I think Black Mirror is a completely unsatisfying and hackish show. Um, because it's sort of, it makes these points, right? That the sort of the oversharing, the, the, the sort of the over-transparency, that the sort of infinite connection, um, that's, that, that this technology may be kind of a bad thing. But it always just sort of, the buck stops at the technology. Um, it, never, it never asks who benefits. It never sees it in terms of a class structure. It never sees it in terms of, well, why? Pretty harmless. She probably kidnapped herself. Huh? Oh, what do you mean, dude? Rug Piers did not do this. Look at it. A young trophy wife marries this guy for his money. She figures uh, he hasn't given her enough. You know, she owes money all over town. Oh. Fucking. It's all bitch. goddamn fake, man. It's like Lennon said. You look for the person who will benefit, and uh, uh, you know. Uh, I am the walrus. You know, you'll. Uh, uh, you know what I'm trying to say. I am the walrus. That's uh, fucking bitch. Oh yeah. I am the walrus. That's ex- shut the fuck up, Donnie. The I Lennon, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. The fuck is he talking about? Right. So there's another line I want to pull out here. Uh, which is that under neoliberalism, the technology of power uh, takes on a subtle form. It does not lay hold of individuals directly. Instead, it ensures that individuals act on themselves so that power relations are interiorized and that and interpreted as freedom. Self-optimization and submission, freedom and exploitation fall into one. Such engineering of freedom and exploitation, which occurs in order to ex- affect self-exploitation, is what escaped Foucault when he originally talked about the technologies of power and the technologies of the self. Basically, they fall into one. So I think the way, one of the ways that sort of Han talks, he talks about this in a lot of ways, but one of the ways I think is very interesting is the way he kind of cashes it out in terms of uh, work. Uh, earlier, I mentioned that your boss um, is no longer uh, forcing you to do anything. Instead, he's your motivational coach, and you force yourself to do, do things. And that all of a sudden, oh, you're not really at work. You know, we, oh, it's, a, it's actually just a game. So I think a great example of this um, is actually HQ Trivia. Uh, HQ Trivia is, for those of you who don't know, um, an app uh, where you and a bunch of other people from around the world uh, get online at the same time and you answer a number of trivia questions hosted by a guy uh, for money. And, you know, you can win 12 bucks, you can win a thousand bucks, whatever. It depends on how many people win, the prize money gets split. Now, what I find interesting um, about HQ Trivia is what it's trying to do with what it's doing here and how this relates to psychopolitics. HQ Trivia isn't ad-funded, and it's free to use. Um, you, but they give away thousands of dollars a day in prizes. Uh, and in fact, it's not even currently focused on profitability. It's just investor money. Um, and what's so interesting about this is that essentially, if you think about who the, who the laborers are and what the product is, it's just the people playing it. Um, that in a sense by playing the game, they become 
the product that will eventually be sold by these investors to a different investor because they're the ones who are making the company valuable by sort of putting their emotions into it, right? And so you get this you get this thing where the people are a combination, the people playing this game are a combination of the working class and the means of production and the commodity sort of all at once because there's no distinguishing between any of these things anymore. They've all collapsed into one another, you know, with, with Debord, you know, um, all forms of media and propaganda and commodity and product and, 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 presentation it all all the signs and dignifiers all fall into one another but you know it's still you watching it even if you're infected by the spectacle you're something else you're still sort of at least a bit outside it you're surrounded by it but there's a barrier in this case there is there is no barrier and it's not even sort of producing anything except your sort of emotional investment um which i think is I guess kind of what we're talking about here is you are sort of unwittingly uh, kind of engaged in, in, in self-exploitation. So one of the chapters I kind of want to focus on is called emotional capitalism. Uh, and that's largely well, because, you know, I think, you know, emotions are stupid. Yeah, that's right. I'm that edgy. Um, uh, but also, I, I really do kind of see the, the sort of schlock that we sort of have to put up with in daily life. I'm talking here about anything from nostalgia um, to uh, sort of to kitsch, kind of even even sort of the the sort of obsession with kind of mindless amusement um, among among a lot of people. I think in their mid twenties who live in London and presumably in New York and Toronto, as sort of these major cities uh, become playgrounds, so that the self exploiting can become you know can be pampered like toddlers. Uh, but um, emotional capitalism. So what Han is saying is that there has been sort of a boom of, of emotions under neoliberal capitalism, right? We, um, we are no longer simply meant to do our jobs. We are no longer simply meant to buy a brand of fucking shirt. No, we're supposed to love our jobs. We're supposed to be passionate about what we do. We're supposed to be friends with our coworkers. We're supposed to be fucking defined by a coat. And not the 20 yards of linen or the amount of work it, took, it takes to make it. He says, the neoliberal regime deploys emotions as resources in order to bring heightened productivity and achievement about. Starting at a certain level of production, rationality, which is the medium of a disciplinary society, hits this limit. So this is the um, driving on the right side of the double yellow line because you don't want to get a ticket. Henceforth, it is experienced as constraint and inhibition. Suddenly, it seems rigid and inflexible. At this point, emotionality takes its place, which is attended by the feeling of liberty. So again, we have this idea that well, it feels kind of free. I've, I've decided I want to be the best at driving in a straight line. I've decided that I want to have gourmet boot. I've decided I want to basically win a medal as the best work fucking guy, to quote Lenny. And that is the real insidious power of the psychopolitical which is that it seizes on emotion in order to influence actions on a pre-reflexive level so before you even kick out when you're hit by the the doctor's little hammer on the knee um you've already been it's already sort of has been programmed into your brain that being hit with a knee a hammer on the knee causes you to kick out so it's it sort of it's it buries itself very 
deep into your psyche. And that's the other thing where sort of we bring back sort of that the otherness of, of, of work and how work is is alienating. You know, where we like to claim that that, oh, now work is not now work is fun. We have climbing walls. We have snacks. Your CEO is your friend. Um, and so the end result, essentially, it's not even just that it becomes impossible to dissent. It's that no one would want to. You know, why, why would you dissent? Um, which is what I think makes this book so kind of arresting. But rather, a, a kind of outsider. Um, someone who utterly rejects uh, the idea of um, sort of relentless self-optimization. Sort of, even though we call, you know, Jay Shetty a weird fucking contact-lensed, um, you know, early-rising fucking cockface idiot... He's not an idiot. We're trying to be the fucking idiots here because we're trying to reject this idea um, that I'm going to feel great because I am succeeding because I am the entrepreneurial master of my own self. And incidentally, have you tried the boot? So in the midst of, of, of this world in which it's impossible to dissent, uh, you also sort of um, impossible to dissent. I almost think it would be like this, the concept doesn't really work because the concept is to feeling and if you feel it it's valid so you know go feel it but at the same time sort of the way you want to dissent is by watching a movie or making a podcast or or whatever um so it's like it's almost it's not even that you wouldn't want to it's that the word doesn't really have any meaning anymore um but in this world exists the quantified self Right. And I think you can kind of guess what that is. It's like where we are sort of monitored with, uh, with with sensors, often, again, self-imposed or in the in the case of the Shapa, you know, it's imposed by your your work or in the case of the West Virginia teachers, it's imposed by your work as or your health insurer uh, to get your insurance. Um, so, so it's relentless sort of internal monitoring. Um, but what what. Han asks is, you know, yet the mounting pile of data of this does nothing to yield an answer to the simple question, who am I? Um, And I think it's largely, and this is me, Riley, saying, is largely is because that's just really saying what you are. You know, because in theory, there could be another whole person with your exact resting heart rate who has sort of recorded your moods at the same level. I'm, I'm happy seven right now. Um, my resting heart rate is, is, is 102 over fucking 69. Fuck you, you know, and, and, and that all of this data coming together, that's the difference between the sort of increasingly sort of imperfect model of a thing and the thing in itself is because we have no sort of theory of mind left over because we're sort of reduced to just a sort of a pile of data. And that's kind of who, who we're left as. Um, but it's also, I think, important to remember that sort of becoming that pile of data sort of depends on some auto-exploitation. It depends on you sort of sharing and liking shit, uh, not including this podcast. Oddly enough, if you share this podcast, it doesn't go into this pile of data that is sort of being subtly used to control you. No, it's this, this is a different thing. Everything else is bad. Um, and, and, and from all that, Sort of, sort of goes together into this pile. And it's, and it's you making it of yourself because you have your Fitbit so you can, you can become the better you. You log your moods so you can be happier. You count your calories so you can be happier. You like stuff so people will know what you like to try and express yourself. 
and 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 it's done in a way uh it's done in this way way of monitoring and so i think this gets us back a little bit to where we started with the cambridge analytica thing which is so that you got the the you sort of open up the question of political free will and the way in which not these technologies exist in themselves, but the way in which they are being used, the way in which they're being used is essentially antithetical to the cause of freedom because it's largely erasing the cause of freedom. It sort of makes it meaningless because it's sort of at once fulfilling all of your desires. while at the same time, completely, uh, closing off uh, and any 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 sort of chance at at any kind of self definition um, because you've already been defined uh, and you've been defined not just by what you've done but by what's been recorded of what you've done and the inferences that can be made around it and so you know at some point you might even ask yourself what's the point of having an election if a firm if a sufficiently advanced version of Cambridge Analytica came along. Uh, then they could just they could just tell you here's who the next president is. Uh, we've checked the data, and you could even say that actually that would set, that would that would give us a way better political outcome if we're saying well the political outcome is the one that matches people's desires. That would give us a way better political outcome than voting, which by comparison is a sort of messy uh, and deeply imperfect process that people are prone to regret. I don't fucking know, man, and women, and people, pals. I don't fucking know. Uh, it doesn't end on a completely sour note, fortunately, um, which is that Han Han says that really the um, the answer is to become an idiot. Um, Han writes that thoroughgoing uh, digital networking and communication have massively amplified the compulsion to conform and the attendant violence of consensus is suppressing idiotism. Um, and I think with, uh, with what we get with what we get with sort of idiotism in Han isn't sort of necessarily being stupid or unable to think. I think that's all from me. I really like this book. I, I strongly recommend um, all of our, our listeners uh, pick it up. Uh, I, I've probably misrepresented a bunch of the shit that he says, uh, but I, I really like it. Um, and, and it is great. I think it's still on sale at Verso. It's like five quid and they didn't ask me to do this. Of course. I mean, I'm probably going to tag them in the post to see if they'll retweet it, but, uh, I'm, I'm doing this, uh, out of sheer, uh, enjoyment, um, at, at the work of Byung-Chul Han. Uh, I'll, I'll link it, I guess I'll link the Verso bookstore um, in the, in the episode description. Um, anyway, uh, we are going to talk more about the Cambridge Analytica stuff, um, in our episode with Alex Hearn that we're recording on Friday, but we'll be releasing probably Monday. So keep your ears peeled for that. Anyways, I have very much enjoyed spending this last half-ish hour, uh, with all of you smiling wonderful people uh, and if anyone ever wants to talk about commie ass postmodern ass cool fucking big dicked literature uh then you know hit hit my line uh i got loud uh if by loud we mean commie postmodern literature later <laughs>